Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. The Fed indicates its tapering program will end in October. Bank of China denies a state report that it let clients move dirty money abroad. And the HKMA intervenes again to weaken the Hong Kong dollar. And later this morning, we'll be looking ahead to China's release of trade data. That report comes out at 10 o'clock. The Fed here said we're going to end, if we do continue at the current pace, we'll cut $15 billion in October rather than 10. Uh, so that's the end of that. So that's the end of that. Tony Crescenzi from PIMCO saying the Fed more or less indicates that it will all be wrapped up in October, assuming things go the way that they are at the moment. And here's tease number two. I don't see the mojo coming back to the street immediately, right? Now, I, it will. I mean, nothing will, will in the end change the culture of Wall Street, which is the fun part. The fun part. Do we want the mojo to come back? Well, you have to wait till a bit later to hear more from bank analyst Brad Hintz, who is leaving Wall Street to go teach at NYU. In our interview segments, Christopher Dillon will be along with us to take a look at property around the world and how you can get some good deals. Enzio Von File from MCL Assets Limited joining us in our studios to talk about the latest market action and trends. Richard Harris from Port Shelter Investment management will be along on the line from Spain and will give us give us his outlook on Europe and also on Hong Kong. Well, let's take a look at markets here in Asia and how they're moving. The Nikkei's up 10 points, 15,312. Australia's higher and so is Seoul. So the good lead in from Wall Street has paved the way for some gains in equity markets this morning. We'll see if it sticks as we follow uh, the open here. And over the next hour, looking at currencies, the dollar is trading right now at 101.55 yen, the euro at $1.36. Oil price is down again, 108.28. So we've seen nine straight days of tweaked to the downside for oil. Brent crude, $108.28, while gold bounced overnight, bounced about $12 or so, $1,328 a troy ounce. On to the news now, and then we'll bring in our guests. Bank of China has denied a state report that it helped clients move dirty money abroad. CCTV, the state broadcaster, had made the claim. But Bank of China said the report contained discrepancies and misunderstandings. It said the bank, uh, or rather the CCTV report, had said that the bank helped wealthy customers launder money. Citing unidentified bank employees, the station said the Bank of China set up a secret scheme to help customers. Customers transfer tens of thousands of dollars abroad. RTHK's Richard Pine reports. CCTV has alleged that the Bank of China and immigration agencies colluded to disguise the origin of the funds after its reporters visited the bank's Beijing, Shenzhen and Guangzhou branches. It said the bank had allowed unlimited exchange of foreign currencies under a special money transferring scheme. It said the bank's employees would not talk about the scheme, called Yu Hui Tong, unless they were asked by customers, and that the bank had not advertised the service. The station said the scheme was a shadowy business that clearly violates the country's foreign exchange rules, which allow individuals to move a maximum of 50,000 US dollars beyond China's borders per year. The station said most of the money under the scheme was transferred to North America, Australia and some European countries. The total amount of money that has been transferred so far via this channel remains unclear, but the station said a single branch in Guangdong had sent 6 billion yuan overseas so far this year. The report severely criticized the bank, saying it was unbelievable that such a big bank is violating law to fill its own pockets. 
Again, the Bank of China denying that claim, saying that uh, the report on CCTV had discrepancies in it and misunderstandings. Well, the Federal Reserve says it's planning to stop its bond purchases in October. The decision was described in the Fed's latest minutes. The account seemed to underscore that the Fed is still somewhat guarded in its optimism about the economy. It also suggests that the Fed has not yet decided when to raise interest rates. The Fed doesn't want markets to sniff out a rate hike too soon. And that was just one other signal on top of many, many signals that it's going to be very, very patient with respect to the removal of its monetary accommodation. Tony Crescenzi there from PIMCO. Treasuries gained overnight. The yield on the 10-year note fell one basis point to 2.55%. Mr. Crescenzi says the bond market has been fairly stable over the past 24 months. For two years, yields have been in a rising trend, of course, and uh, the Fed is exiting, you could say, by not buying bonds as much as it used to. Uh, And so the market is worried about the eventual exit, but not much because yields haven't moved. In fact, the yields have been remarkably stable for the past year. The 10-year trading between just 2.45% and 3%, and PIMCO would expect volatility to stay low because its policy rate isn't moving for a year, roughly, and when it moves, it won't move by much. Some Fed officials were concerned that investors might be growing too complacent about the economic outlook. Officials expressed concern about low volatility in equity markets, also in currency and fixed income. At the same time, it was noted that monetary policy was needed, uh, quote, to continue to promote favorable financial conditions. More now from Tony Crescenzi. Keep in mind this other thing, that when the Fed does move on rates, its balance sheet actions have to be combined with that to your way of thinking about rates in general. There's been what we call unconventional easing. There'll also be unconventional tightening. For every trillion dollars the Fed has bought, it's been the equivalent of about a percentage point cut in the funds rate. So next year, 2015, when the Fed doesn't buy those trillion dollars, it's almost like raising the funds rate a point. And so over two years, 2015 and 2016, it's like raising the funds rate equivalent in terms of its impact on financial conditions two points and combine that with the two percent expectation for the funds rate that's like four and then there are other factors that will mean additional tightening so the balance sheet actions are important too in considering rates and rates are likely to stay stable and that's part of the thesis uh, from PIMCO that even when the Fed gets started, it will not be aggressive in raising rates. On Wall Street, stocks rebounded sharply from a two-day sell-off. Optimism over earnings and jobs growth carried the day. That kind of overshadowed the Fed concern that investors might be complacent. The S&P 500 was up half a percent at 1972. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 78 points to 16,985. So the earnings season has begun. Bank analyst Brad Hintz says it will be interesting to see bank earnings. The issue here is I'm actually finding it a little tedious, right? I mean, these companies are tied up in regulation. They have surplus capital. Um, Essentially, regulators are making many of the decisions inside the companies. They don't want to admit this. But, you know, if if the OCC is telling you what leverage ratios Mm -hmm. you can use when you're lending to a client and and what advance rates you can do in a prime brokerage operation. So micromanaging. And, and, you know, for me, I've been been watching and waiting for the Fed to do something Mm -hmm. for three years. And he says not much has happened. He also says that Wall Street will definitely go back to its old ways. We will see the street go back to um, to its venial sins, right? 
they they always seem to do that. It'll just be a different set of venial sins that they'll be that they'll be doing. You know, that's the joy of the of the place, which is you know you could write mystery novels about it. You it's it's, it's bestsellers, movies. You know, it's inclusive in the sense that you know you can have people without high school degrees competing with people for, who went to Harvard Business School. Yeah, that's Brad Hintz. I was trying to figure out whether he really meant venial, uh, which, of course, in Roman Catholicism is a forgivable sin, or whether he meant venal, which is kind of like selling yourself. Uh, but it wasn't clear. I didn't do the interview, but that was Brad Hintz. Again, uh, a top analyst on Wall Street who's moving to NYU uh, to teach banking. Alcoa was up 6% in the latest trading, the highest level in about two years after kicking off earnings season with better than forecast results. We told you about those yesterday. Yesterday morning, 18 cents a share versus expectations of 12. Let's see what else. Well, Europe was a little bit uh, mixed, but generally speaking, a bit higher. The DAX up 35 points, the CAC up 17. The FTSE 100 in London, though, down 20 points for the day at 67.18. We say good morning now to Enzio von File, founder of MCL Assets Limited. Enzio, morning. a very pleasant morning to you. Thanks for coming into Thank our, you. our studios. Did you make much of the Fed minutes? No, not really. There's there's not been much change, perhaps because they've remained in fairly conservative mode, which goes to say that they don't want to rock the boat. What the market, though, is surprisingly coming at, and this happens in every in every economic cycle that our economic clock sort of presages, is that the good news, the markets go up because of higher earnings, and markets are then held up because guess what? Folks decide that the rates are going to rise. So it's always this contradiction, this tug of war between higher earnings and higher rates. And that's, I suspect, one key reason why volatility has been low because the, mat the buyers have been matching the sellers, of course, with a little upside on the buying side. Otherwise, the market wouldn't have gone up. So no big surprises. So lots to consider. Um, rates uh, at zero. Um, earnings uh, OK, but colored a little bit by the buybacks uh, that Wall Street has done, uh, an uncertain economic outlook and very low growth. How do companies get 5, 6, 7% earnings growth when, when revenues are not growing that much because the economy is not doing that well? I'm not any good at accounting and balance sheets and all this kind of stuff, but I do suspect that a lot of this has been in the cost-cutting area, and this is precisely the cutting of wages, the cutting the increase in the unit labor in the unit um, product labor productivity in other words that you get more and more bang for your buck so to speak per hour worked globalization clearly has paid, played a role in the cost cutting arena and then all sorts of fancy balance sheet tricks that I'm just not really sort of able to to discuss because I just don't understand them so wh but, what's the most important thing to watch then is it actually wages if we see wages going up then that's going to be the trigger for higher interest rates absolutely but you're going to be watching a long long time because in my mind it's the globalization the cost cutting which also means the cutting of workers which means that the unemployment rate is going to remain pretty lowish for a long, long time. We're still working in the paradigm of the 70s and 80s of pronounced economic cycles. Whilst my economic clock still works, it is ticking on much less volatile these days. So when, when does the time elapse uh, to the point where wages can start to go up in the West again? Because, you know, they're, they're, they would be comp um, competitive with the rest of the world, which I assume is the point you're making from globalization. 
I don't think that the wages in the U.S. need necessarily go up that strongly for the very simple reason that the multinational corporations in that book that I put out keep on pumping up U.S.'s global trade surplus. In other words, America is importing more and more of these of its own goods from abroad. And so I see the threat of wage push inflation, what we call demand pull inflation, very low cost push inflation, however, is very high because of the weather, because of the um, because of the rising commodity prices, things like that. But that the Fed can't control. It can only control the demand pull inflation, which is going to remain very weak. So what are you watching the most closely at the moment? I think that it's payrolls in America. That's the key issue because they seem to come out much more in a much more timely fashion. They are less influenced by things like the weather stuff that people just can't control, not even central bankers. But is it a good thing or a bad thing? A good thing uh, with wages going up means that companies are doing well enough, I suppose, that they, you know, they're growing, they see demand, they can raise the wages of their workers without affecting costs too much. The bad thing, if you're worried about interest rates, it might mean that you know, rate hikes are coming. Absolutely. And that's, again, this contradiction that I was referring to before, Brian, that the higher earnings, on the one hand, push the prices of stocks up, but then the fear of those higher earnings translating to higher wages push things down. But the big, the un, the thing that can unlock all of this is, of course, the productivity of the workers. So even if the wages go up, it doesn't matter that much if the productivity rises more than the wage rise, because then the unit labor cost actually falls, which is a gibberish of saying things become cheaper despite the look as if they become more expensive. Yeah, we like gibberish in uh, in the business business and finance. There's plenty of it, that's for sure. 20 years of it. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The productivity productivity hasn't actually been all that great in the U.S. economy lately. Um, What about in China? How How do you see productivity at at the moment, and also um, the the PBOC keeps intervening in the uh, currency market. And there's a report out this morning that says that China uh, is maintaining that it can't stop intervening in the renminbi because economic growth is too weak and capital flows aren't steady enough to warrant changes. What does that tell us? Well, what they're really saying is that capital outflows aren't steady enough to warrant changes. And what I mean by that is that if China were to really open its capital accounts truly and fully, then you would find the renminbi decline, something that I've been suggesting for some years, actually, that the money heading out the barn is going to be much greater than money heading back into the barn. Money heading out of the barn, because, of course, there's a lot of black money that wants to get out, less money heading into the barn, because guess what? The government is beginning to clamp down on multinationals in China itself. And that, of course, then reduces the attractiveness of China as a place to invest in, not to, of course, mention social unrest in China. Let me bring in Richard Harris, the Chief Executive Officer of Port Shelter Investment Management. Richard, thanks for joining us from Europe. It's a pleasure, Brian. Yeah, we're talking about China, and I know that you've been looking at debt in China and analyzing uh, those who think it's a problem versus those who don't think it's a problem. Uh, Which group is right? Well, this is a big debate that's been going on, and um, uh, one of the things is to try and see what's happening. Now, in a sense, they're both right, because, you know, China's a big country, it has a lot of reserves, it can cover a lot of the debt, and what we're talking about is something like 
over 200% of GDP at the moment of debt. Now, it's pretty much in line with Japan. And remember that Greece actually went bankrupt with debt of about 140% of GDP. So there is a lot of debt around in China. But China couldn't really have been built without it. So it needed this kind of debt. And the question is, can they keep servicing it? Can they pay the interest? Um, And it looks as if they can. But I think the jury's still out on whether they will be able to uh, keep the news flow as constant and as seamless as they need to. Because all these little bits of bad news coming out of needing a bit of support here and there um, could actually lead to some bad news headlines in the markets. So do you think the main point is is how uh, fast they can grow or how long they can keep up uh, this relative level of, of strong growth? I think it's a little bit, as Enzio is saying, we're in a race at the moment between needing economic growth on one side and covering some of the big problems, the economic problems that we've seen on the other. It's the same in the U.S., it's the same in Europe, and it's the same in China. And China does need economic growth. The problem is China's economic growth is almost wholly dependent on uh, growth in Western markets in Europe and the US. And while it's going on okay, not particularly great, a little bit sluggish, um, China's growth is going to remain the same. And this is their big problem, is they need growth to keep pushing the engine forward. We're likely to see negative headlines. Uh, That's the nature of such an enormous economy. We've got one um, from yesterday, which is uh, a CCTV report looking at Bank of China. What are the headlines, or in other words, what are the big stories that you would maybe be most concerned about? You know, I think we're looking at uh, some big issues in the property market. Uh, people are over leveraged there, and, and there's a possibility maybe that if the property market continues to be weak, then the uh, uh, property, uh, maybe one of the big property stocks would go down. If that happened, you may then get a domino effect, which would lead to uh, maybe uh, one of the local governments having difficulties paying, maybe a regional bank getting into difficulty. Now, all of these stages, I think the Chinese um, central authorities will be able to control. But the big question is, are they going to want to bail out each of the local governments that have maybe been profligate with the people's money? Or are they going to want to make them sweat a little bit? And I think they're going to have to make them sweat a little bit, uh, find some of the perpetrators, and it's those issues that are going to cause the headlines. In looking at equity strategy, there was a report out overnight uh, from Bloomberg that uh, a number of key asset managers are are selling Hong Kong now and buying China, that the valuations are just much better in China. Do you feel comfortable enough to buy Chinese equities? Well, I'm not so sure these days, and maybe recent events are starting to prove that, whether there's an enormous difference between Hong Kong and China. I mean, after all, uh, a lot of uh, Hong Kong equity is is Chinese anyway, and of course it refers much more to the larger size of state-owned companies, those sort of things. And yes, you can go into China, and if you can get uh, A-share quota, you can buy smaller stocks and slightly different things, but that requires a lot more specialization. Um, So I'm not so sure people are going to make that distinction except that perhaps if you're a foreigner uh, in people's minds, you might think that it's cooler to buy China as against Hong Kong. But I'm not sure that there's a really big story in there now. Enzio, when you look at Hong Kong versus China, where do you come down on the ledger? 
Well, I respectfully differ with my esteemed colleague, Richard, because I think that there's going to be an increased bifurcation. I, too, used to think that Hong Kong was the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat. But what I'm seeing here with Occupy Central and all of this unrest which has to come with this wildfire just looming is I think the Asta Allocator is going to say, why even go into Hong Kong when I can buy China-traded stock where perhaps the growth there is at least beginning to stabilize, if not look up just a little bit. Is it true that the mainland companies, even those ones listed in Hong Kong, tend to be, to be more domestically focused, whereas Hong Kong companies are more uh, global? Uh, not from a market cap perspective, from the little that I know about the composition of our index, because with these five families, oh, I'm sorry, these property developers ruling Hong Kong, it seems to me as if the, um, you know, that's all you, pretty you didn't local say, stuff. You didn't say crime families there, did you? Oh, you never, said, never. You said no, five how, how could I possibly yeah. say that? Okay, continue with your English thought. is my second <laughs> language, as you know. Um, so... I think that what you're going to, that a lot of this is still pretty locally driven. I mean, HSBC, even I know that 36% of its global profits come from Hong Kong. So it is still a domestic Hong Kong play. All of the property developers, all of the big conglomerates here are very much locally driven by domestic demand. So I don't think that one can say that Hong Kong is that international perversity on the capitalization of its markets. Uh, we had you on mic when you were welcoming David O'Rear into the studio uh, a little while ago. Trying to. Unfortunately, the mic was still up. But <laughs> David's part comes up in the second uh, part of Money for Nothing after 8.30. I'm sure he's itching to get in, and he will be when I ask you the next couple of questions. And I'll, I'll refer to uh, or go back to Richard as well. I wanted to talk for a few minutes about Occupy Central and what sort of message the very large march on July 1st had and also uh, the difficulties that police had in removing some of the protesters. Uh, uh, after midnight. Um, now, is that um, something that has a big market or economic impact to you, Enzio? It certainly has a huge market impact. I'll, I'll just make three brief points. One, I think that a wildfire has been set in motion. We don't know yet until I think the second half of August how much the tinder will be lit. Secondly, I think that you, that we have not dealt with our freedoms sufficiently hitherto to warrant the need for more freedoms. In other words, we haven't done anything about English pollution, cartels, a lot of issues people know about. And thirdly, I think there's going to be a massive backlash by the conservatives in China who, of course, keep on having an eye on Taiwan and are beginning to say, gosh, we hope that Hong Kong would show us the way with Taiwan. It's not doing so. Get tough on the guys in Hong Kong. Do you think there's too much focus on politics and not on some of those practical issues that you mentioned? I think so, because I think that the it's very sad to see the filibustering going on, really a bunch of petulant naysayers, in my mind, not then worrying about the stuff that really democracy should be worried about, which is the welfare of the people, such as rebuilding Queen Mary Hospital. Well, that's only going to be delayed for another year Sure, now. but uh, Richard, the independence of the judiciary, there couldn't be too much more important uh, than that to the business community. And if you look at what was in the white paper, it seemed to suggest, it depends on how you interpret it, but it seemed to suggest that judges should be, you know, part of the system, administrators, and that they should be thinking about what's good overall for Hong Kong and the country. Well, 
if you look at one particular issue that makes Hong Kong different from other cities in China, it is the independence of our judiciary. You can sue the government and win. Now, without that, uh, we're a relatively small city in a very large country um, and rather subservient to Beijing and Shanghai. Um, I actually think we're slightly missing the point with all this political stuff. My feeling is that actually we're now being caught in maybe a political battle that's being held on on the mainland, um, that the whole Occupy Central thing is really a bit of a sideshow. Um, and what it has done is actually brought out the people of Hong Kong in terms of thinking more about themselves and about what they want in the future. So I think we're making a mistake if we're saying occupation uh, Occupy Central is, is the issue, because I think that if they lie in the street, business people will just walk over them to go to work. Um, I think the key issue is how are the general people of Hong Kong going to feel uh, if they do sense that China is starting to take over and making Hong Kong just a part of China and not the special autonomous region that we have been. There's always been factional politics in China, but you seldom see something as dramatic as yesterday where CCTV, the state broadcaster, accuses Bank of China essentially of money laundering. Do you think that Hong Kong is caught up in some sort of factional politics in the party? I think that's partly what's happening. I think one of the uh, things that we're seeing is that uh, there are a lot of people in China in important positions looking at Hong Kong and saying, why do those guys have so much? Why are they so favored by the party? Why do they have these, quote, freedoms and other people don't? And I think that we're being used as part of this political football as well. Um, the CCTV thing, I think, is, is maybe a sideshow compared to all of that. Um, there's no doubt that if CCTV brings something like this up, um, it's going to be officially sanctioned. Um, but what's probably happening is a little bit as you see in any uh, government scenario where maybe you have the revenue saying we don't like um, uh, this kind of offshore activity going on. It could happen in the US. It could happen in Europe. Um, it just happens to be happening in, in China. It's just interesting that it's happening through the press. Enzio, what about that? Factional politics, Hong Kong caught in the middle? Caught in the middle because we're exacerbating those politics by really irking for a fight, itching for a fight, the Democrats here with the conservatives in Beijing, thus playing straight into their hand in that sense, absolutely. Okay, listen, we're just uh, coming up to the news at the bottom of the hour, and then we've got uh, another half hour to go uh, uh, with um, David O'Rear from the Hong Kong General Chamber. And we'll also be talking to Christopher Dillon, author, entrepreneur, and investor. And uh, But I'd like to say thanks now to Dr. Enzio von File, founder of MCL Partners. And Richard, thank you very much for phoning in from Spain. Enjoy the trip, and we'll see you back in Hong Kong soon. Richard Harris, uh, CEO of Port Shelter Investment Management. So let me wrap up with how markets are trading here just before the news comes in. The Nikkei's turned to the downside, down about 11 points. Markets are a little bit higher in Australia and Seoul. Oil was down, oil down to 108 a barrel for one barrel of Brent crude, and gold was up, up to $1,328. The weather in Hong Kong today. Well, severe tropical storm Niaguri centered about 80 kilometers northwest of Kagoshima. It's moving away from us. Our forecast, mainly cloudy, a few showers and isolated thunderstorms. 33 degrees as the maximum. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. The news coming up next.
Time is 8.30. The news now with Samantha Butler. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said his country is ready to step up operations against what he called terrorist organizations in Gaza until rocket fire against Israeli targets stops. Israel's intelligence minister has said a ground invasion to temporarily recapture Gaza is approaching. Israeli air raids have intensified. Medical authorities in Gaza say more than 50 Palestinians, mostly civilians, have been killed. The leader of Hamas's political bureau, Khaled Mashal, says the world has has done nothing to stop Israeli aggression against the Palestinian people. Today we were forced to enter war. We haven't chosen to enter it. The Palestinian people gave so many chances to initiatives made by the Americans, the UN, the Europeans and the Arabs. We received so many peace envoys and all what they did was covering Israeli crimes and standing by watching while the Israelis are killing peace. Indonesia's incumbent president has summoned both candidates from yesterday's disputed presidential election amid concern over potential unrest. Radio Australia's George Roberts reports from Jakarta. Indonesia's Chief Security Minister Joko Suyanto and the President Susilo Bangbang Yudhoyono have called for calm after both presidential hopefuls were declared winners by different polling agencies and TV networks. The President summoned the candidates to his private residence near Jakarta last night. The most reputable polling agencies called the election for Joko Widodo. Eight independent groups gave him about 52% of the votes based on a quick count of thousands of polling stations. Two others said to be a to propose Subianto have called him the winner, but their methodology is unclear. A report based on documents provided by the former U.S. security analyst Edward Snowden says the FBI and America's National Security Agency secretly scanned the emails of five prominent Muslim Americans. The report maintains the effort was part of a huge government surveillance program aimed at rooting out foreign terrorists and other national security threats. From Washington, the BBC's David Willis reports. The report on the website First Look says that among those targeted were a former political candidate, an academic, a lawyer and two civil rights activists. All of them are Muslims and the report says all of them were monitored under procedures intended to root out terrorists and foreign spies. One of the five, a Pakistani-born lawyer, Faisal Gill, once worked as a policy director at the Department of Homeland Security. He and the others categorically deny being involved in terrorism and none has been implicated in any crime. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. This is Money for Nothing here on Radio 3. I'm Brian Curtis reporting. Backchat takes a break until September or so. Keeping a close eye on Occupy Central, we might bring the program back if that campaign were to be launched. We'll continue with our news flow. And then in just a few moments, we'll be speaking with David O'Rear from the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce and Christopher Dillon, the author and entrepreneur. That coming up shortly. Bank of China has denied a report by state broadcaster CCTV, accusing it of breaking foreign exchange rules by helping wealthy customers move dirty money overseas. It said references in the reports by the broadcaster and other media of an underground bank and of money laundering were inconsistent with the facts. CCTV had cited several unidentified BOC employees as saying that the state-controlled bank had set up a secret scheme that would help customers transfer billions of dollars overseas. Our Richard Pine reports. 
CCTV has alleged that the Bank of China and immigration agencies colluded to disguise the origin of the funds after its reporters visited the bank's Beijing, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou branches. It said the bank had allowed unlimited exchange of foreign currencies under a special money transferring scheme. It said the bank's employees would not talk about the scheme, called Yuhui Tong, unless they were asked by customers, and that the bank had not advertised the service. The station said the scheme was a shadowy business that clearly violates the country's foreign exchange rules, which allow individuals to move a maximum of fifty thousand U.S. dollars beyond China's borders per year. The station said most of the money under the scheme was transferred to North America, Australia, and some European countries. The total amount of money that has been transferred so far via this channel remains unclear, but the station said a single branch in Guangdong had sent six billion yuan overseas so far this year. The report severely criticized the bank, saying it was unbelievable that such a big bank is violating law to fill its own pockets. Two MTR unions here in Hong Kong are working to rule to press for higher pay. The rail company has offered them a five and a quarter percent pay rise, but they want at least six and a half percent. The members of the unions are refusing to work overtime or to come in to work on holidays. Their industrial action is not expected to have any direct impact on services. But the vice chairman of the Hong Kong Railway Employees Union, Tam Kin Chu, warns that they may step up their action. You know the inflation rate. Uh, last year was four percent, so the actual increase salary was only one percent this year. We must discuss with our, our member to decide what to do next. And Argentina has set up a World Cup showdown with Germany after beating Holland 4-2 in a penalty shootout. That in the second semi-final at the World Cup. But is Brazil in the mood anymore for the World Cup following its own 7-1 humbling by Germany yesterday? We get more from the BBC's Wira Davis in Rio. It was the only topic for discussion this morning at work, on television, and here at Bradesco FM Radio in Rio. The newspapers were particularly brutal. One telling the Brazilian coach Felipe Scolari to go to hell. Another giving all the Brazilian players ratings of naught out of ten. On the streets, they were also less than impressed. This market stall holder selling off his replica team jerseys for a song. Fifteen reais. Fifteen reais. So they were about eight、uh, pounds or nine pounds, and now down to about two pounds or three pounds. It may only be a game, but one that's incredibly important to most Brazilians. A government hit by economic difficulties had ridden the wave of euphoria while Brazil stayed in the cup. Now they're out. There may be repercussions, says Jamil Shade, a political writer. The government is already worried that this can affect the elections in October. It is worried that this can have even an economic impact somehow in the country. So this loss of yesterday it goes much beyond the pitch, much beyond football. The weeks before the cup were dominated by issues, including the huge public cost of putting on the tournament. That will undoubtedly resurface as Brazilians now ask whether it was all worth it. We're Davis reporting. The time is now 22 minutes before nine o'clock. We say good morning to David O'Rear, the chief economist at the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce. David, good morning. Good morning. One of the recent data points、uh, here in Hong Kong was a little bit of weakness in retail sales, and that has a lot of political、um, ramifications, I guess, as well. If if you get involved in、uh, the sort of Hong Kong China、uh, dispute, but is it something to be concerned about? The fact that retail sales are not growing quite as fast as they were.
Well, it's something we keep a close eye on because it is uh, one of the largest domestic sectors. Um, but let's remember that the, the really shocking nearly 10% drop in April was coming off the back of an extremely high uh, base from the year before that was largely based on very expensive jewelry and watches and, and gifts items that are often purchased by tourists. So are we seeing a, a, a shock slowdown in the tourist demand? Well, we haven't got the full numbers for the first half on tourist arrivals, uh, but I would suspect that it's not that sharp of a decline uh, to explain this. And so it's really, uh, I think, going to be part of the entire uh, anti-corruption campaign going on in China that might be affecting our sales here. Do you worry that fewer numbers of mainland visitors will ultimately lead to uh, a drop in sales? Well, I mean, mainland tourism is our, our secret uh, back um, that's holding us together when, when the world economy is not doing well. And you think about the, uh, the, the state of East Asia in general, and, and exports are doing very poorly in most economies, including here. Um, but we have this, this wonderful little uh, trick that we can sell things to tourists that come here in amazing numbers. I mean, we're talking about seven times the population that comes here to visit every year. Um, so it is something that we need to keep very close uh, uh, an eye on, but we also need to make sure that we're not going to drive these people away by calling them bad names. Do you think that um, this mainlandization of Hong Kong, <clears throat> that uh, Hong Kongers have kind of got it up to here with it? Well, I kind of think of it the other way around, which is uh, the mainland is becoming a whole lot more like Hong Kong in the last 25 years than Hong Kong like the mainland. Um, we are seeing some uh, extraordinary uh, positive liberalization measures and, and even political liberalization in China that we would never have anticipated 25 years ago. Give, so, give our audience a, an idea, though. You know, we talked about retail sales as though that's a big part of domestic consumption, I guess. Everybody always looks at economies, uh, you know, how strong is investment, how strong is the consumer level, and then uh, exports. We see that um, in, in terms of estimates on China's exports, that report will be out this morning about 10 o'clock, that out of 47 analysts, um, they predicted that the exports will have risen, risen about 10.5% year-on-year in June in China. How important are exports uh, to a service economy like us? Well, if you look at the straight GDP figures, uh, and if you consider that what we call exports may actually be just moving through Hong Kong rather than actually being owned or, or reprocessed here, um, we're talking about an, an enormous amount, uh, larger than our entire GDP. Uh, 225% of GDP is about the right number. So if exports go up a little bit or down a little bit, that just knocks our GDP in, that, in the direction. Um, the domestic side is so small that uh, it really cannot have an effect on the headline numbers. And, and for us looking at China's exports, if they indeed were up 10.5%, uh, is, is, uh, is that good for us? Is that strong for Hong Kong? Well, certainly it is for the, the trading sector, uh, the insurance sector, the shipping and logistics sector, um, and for the overall headline figures. But let me, let me give you a little example. During SARS, um, we had the, the five-star hotel in Kowloon that had the highest occupancy rate reported 9% occupancy. Mm. Uh, Staggering. You could call up uh, the, the best restaurant in Hong Kong at 9 o'clock on a Friday night and say, I'll be there in 10 minutes with a party of 10, and they'd say, oh, good, we have a discount on. <laughs> uh, no problem getting the best table. The economy that year grew 2.5% on the basis of trade only. Now, then fast so forward. So we had very little domestic consumption because of SARS, but yes. we had a very strong export regime. Then fast forward to 2009, 
when uh, w- the domestic economy was roaring along, world trade collapsed, and the economy went into deep recession. Um, it is trade that gives us the GDP figure and, and nothing else. So when I began this interview uh, asking you about um, uh, sales here, retail sales, uh, you said it's one of the things you watch closely. What are the things you watch the most closely? Well, certainly we keep a close eye on what our members are saying in the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, we do surveys every year. We talk to them repeatedly. We have about 200 events a year that we have close interaction with our members. And and what they're telling us is that the uh, regulatory environment is becoming very difficult that each individual law that is passed, whether it's nutrition labeling, um, paternity leave, uh, minimum wage, competition policy, uh, on and on and on, each one of them is small, you can deal with it. But then the cumulative effect just keeps building and building and building. And that is the number one concern they have is the cost of doing business. Do they think we're overregulated now? Uh, certainly in comparison to the past, we are. Um, some of this may be very, very smart regulation. Some of these things needed to be done. But when you put it all in a line, really, for the last five years of just constant increase in regulation without taking a broad view of how does this all bear down on the uh, smaller and medium-sized businesses, uh, then you're really looking at, at the potential for uh, undermining our competitiveness in the long term. So that um, speaks of of what your uh, constituents don't like that has been uh, that has been put forward by government in the form of new legislation. Um, what are some of the things that they would like to see happen that haven't? Well, there's certain uh, tweaks to the, the taxation system that would be very very beneficial. Uh, I and mean, you're for- not saying lower taxes because they're already so low. What would what would the tweaks be? You think the taxes are low. That's, that's interesting. If you look at the World Bank's uh, analysis of effective taxation, which is not just the rate you pay, but what you pay on. Uh, you know, if, you pay, if we don't pay any tax on, on uh, VAT and somebody else does, they have a higher effective tax rate than we do. Now, if you look at the effective profits tax rate, we're at about 17.5%. And that's actually higher than the headline rate because of what is taxed in their World Bank model. If you look at Singapore, they're less than half that. So what is being taxed is very important. And the key uh, issue, I think, in that area is uh, what's called group loss relief and loss carryback. It's very common in Hong Kong to have a collection of small companies held under one group that may only be turning over 20 or $50 million a year collectively. But if one company makes a loss and another makes a profit, you can't offset them one against the other. In Singapore and many, many other places, you can do that, and so your effective tax rate goes down. We are stuck with a a 16.5% profits tax rate. It was promised back in 2004 that it would be reduced to 15% uh, after the budget balanced, uh, and now after we've balanced the budget. We've piled up a lot of surpluses, so you think it's about time now. So it's, it's well overdue. Yeah. Okay, David, thanks very much uh, for, for – oh, I wanted to ask you one last question that I think puzzles a lot of people, uh, which um, speaks to um, investment. Um, the, you know, we, we worry about Occupy Central and the message that it sends, and yet all this money has rushed into Hong Kong that the uh, HKMA has had to intervene again overnight in New York, it intervened to keep the Hong Kong dollar from appreciating. Where is this money coming from, and why is – um, why, why does that seem to be the opposite of the stock market, you know, being, you know, sort of in the doldrums? 
Well, I'm not a, a financial market analyst, so I'm, I'm going to be very careful about what I say here. Um, where else would you put your money? Uh, I don't want to name individual countries that might be having uh, concerns about how they're going to count the presidential vote that took place yesterday. But it would be uh, one of my top suspects as a possible source of capital flowing in here and looking for a safe haven. We still have so a think very Indone- strong Indonesian rule of law. money. I, I really couldn't say. <laughs> okay. um, we do have a very strong rule of law. We have an excellent world class banking system. If you need to get your money into a safe place temporarily, this is one of your best choices. Okay. Well, David, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, we didn't actually get confirmation from your office you were coming in, but it was great that you did anyway. And so you were a bit of a surprise guest, almost a, a mystery guest to the Sorry host. Uh, I was like, what are we going to talk to David about to the producer? He said, uh, hell, we'll I don't know. <laughs> we'll find something. Which we did. We found it. And uh, your kernels of wisdom are now spreading out throughout the globe. Thank, thank you very you, much. David O'Rear, the chief economist from the Hong Kong General Chamber of Commerce, bringing us to 12 and a half minutes before 9 o'clock. We built this city. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city. Okay, it is time to say good morning to Christopher Dillon. As I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, he is an author, an entrepreneur, and an investor. Chris has lived in Hong Kong since 1992 and has a new book out. We thought we'd chat a little bit about the book. The book is called um, Landed Global, and it was written to help people buy property across international borders. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Brian. So this is a book that looks outward. We talked um, in one of our previous chats about Japan, mm-hmm. and we've talked a little bit about Hong Kong. This particular book, which are some of the countries that it focuses on? Well, it actually covers 110 countries and territories around the world and uses specific information about 130 cities as well. Well, it must be pretty thin then if it's uh, covering that much ground. Well, the idea is there are certain similarities depending on what real estate market you're investing in. So to give you an example, uh, Hong Kong is common law. So if you buy in another common law jurisdiction like New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the United States, many of the processes and, and legal concepts are going to be very similar. So you can start with that as a, as a basis. Likewise with civil law countries, so France, Germany, most of Africa, Latin America, uh, a notary, a notaire there is, this, is very different from a notary public, say, in a common law country. So you can start with that as a basis point. And I guess this book really looks at uh, every level, uh, not just uh, legal jurisdiction, but uh, also things like uh, um, structures, managing asbestos, uh, lead paint, things like this that are, are more practical considerations for people if they're thinking about shelling out you know, half a million dollars. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned asbestos and lead paint. Um, everybody pretty much knows that if you buy an old home in many parts of the world, you're going to have to deal with both of those things. Many people don't know that uh, asbestos is actually still being used in new homes in the United States, and it's approved by the EPA for that actual purpose. Does um, that mean it's safe in some way, uh, the safe asbestos? Asbestos itself isn't actually safe, but it is safe as long as it's not disturbed. So when it becomes released into the air and it, uh, you breathe it in and it becomes lodged in your lungs, the little fine, very fine particles, it'll cause, uh, it can cause a variety of diseases, including uh, lung cancer. But as long as it's actually in place and not in the air, and it's the same thing with lead, you're actually okay, as long so, as you're not breathing it in. So would you say that this book doesn't really look at market, um, it's not really a market timing thing, or does it include that as well? No, it 
it actually doesn't speak to markets. The 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 um, the audience that I wrote this for, I, I imagined a couple lying in bed uh, at the end of the day talking, and you know, one one half of the couple says, you know, darling, I'm going to get a nice bonus. It's that season, and I've got some money. And you know, we've always thought about buying real estate, and you know, where should we start? And and everybody thinks of real estate as an investment class, but there's no sort of thing that you can read, book that you can read that will give you an overview of the concept and how it works and and how to go about it. So um, when you uh, look at countries around the world uh, and the ease of doing business, that obviously is a is a big part of it. Uh, what are some of the jurisdictions that you think would be most favorable for Hong Kong buyers? Well, at the risk of st- uh, stealing a page from your previous guest's book, uh, Hong Kong's rule of law is, is really, really attractive. And rule of law is a little bit like oxygen. You don't notice it till it's gone. Um, so irrespective of, of the fact that, you know, Mark, prices are probably close to all-time highs in Hong Kong. I think we've come off a couple of percentage points from, from the all-time high. Um, you say that there are so many other considerations that maybe don't let the market worry you too much. Indeed. I mean, if you can't freely buy, sell, and then repatriate your funds, uh, the gain that you've actually achieved is kind of academic. Um, and you really – this speaks to a bigger point, which is that you, you really need to do your homework about the market that you're buying in. Um, I'll give you an example. If you're a non-resident and you buy in Canada and then you sell the property, your lawyer is required by law to withhold 25 to 50 percent of the sales proceeds until you've satisfied the government that you've paid all the taxes. And if you were planning on using that money somewhere else, that six-week or two-month wait could put a crimp in your plans. So presumably you also detail where there's capital gains and where there are not and where there's some other frictional uh, costs involved. Oh, uh, absolutely. The, the biggest single thing, I mean, those are usually easy to, to get your head around. If you talk to the big four accounting firms, many of them publish uh, manuals and, and guidebooks about investing in, in various countries. But it's the little quirks that can sneak up and bite you on the backside. Um, let me give you an example. In the UK, there's an ancient uh, fee called chancel repair. Uh, and there was a case that just wound up last year where a couple ended up having to pay 200,000 pounds after a 17-year um, legal fight uh, in chancellor repair fees. And what that is is, is a, a fee that you as a landlord or a landowner have to pay to keep up the local church. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's something that you know, most people wouldn't know about. So it really pays when you go in to buy somewhere to ask open-ended questions. And you might not learn that from the big four. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, 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 that's the sort of thing that actually your people skills are really going to help you with because you want to be able to build rapport with your neighbors, people who've already bought there, the agent, you know, and, and say, you know, well, what else do I need to know about this community? Um, it's not all written down. Is Tokyo still a top destination for you? I, I have a, a, a soft spot for Tokyo. I think the time to buy was probably two years ago. Um, it's a very, very hot market now. You're getting... A lot of interest from uh, overseas investors who are looking for yield, people who are looking for capital gains on on uh, redevelopment plays around Tokyo Bay. And actually to say the words capital gains and Tokyo real estate in the same sentence required a little bit of effort. I mean, it's been 20 years since we've seen anything like that. Since you did sort of a comprehensive investigation, uh, where would some of the best yields be found at the moment? Never mind two years ago, Tokyo, but right now. Um, Detroit, you can get 30%. Uh, I don't know if that includes a bulletproof vest or not, um, but you can, in fact, get very high yields there. Tokyo is still 10% is possible. Harder, though. And what are the approximate yields at the moment in Hong Kong? Well, I, I think people in the past have, have, have been quite happy to get even 3 to 4% yields here. Is it still sort of in that range? It really depends on what property you're talking about because – 
And this is a very common um, issue with any market. People talk about Hong Kong or Paris or Tokyo, and it's it's not one homogenous market. I mean, the the, the people uh, buying property on the peak are very different from people buying mass market in. Um, you know, in a, in a housing estate somewhere in Kowloon are very different from Causeway Bay Commercial are very different from industrial. Um, it also, I mean, if you're looking to buy for yield, there's an inverse relationship between the likelihood that you would want to live there and its, its uh, attractiveness as an investment very often. Let me ask you about a theme happening in the United States because you mentioned Detroit and, uh, of course, in the past, all the inner cities um, c- were considered a bit dangerous. It seems like, uh, listening to anecdotal evidence, that that is changing, that the cities for 20-odd years have seen crime rates drop and more people are moving back into the cities. Again, this is anecdotal. It seems like that is a trend that's happening. People are moving back in. They don't want the upkeep of a big yard. They don't want the long commute. Is that something that um, investors um should be mindful of very much and and you've identified a, a key trend in the american real estate market as people get older um, they're downsizing the baby boomers in particular um, they're getting rid of the the single family home and the couple uh, are getting maybe a one or a two bedroom condo the idea then is that you move to the center of the city where you can walk to restaurants to bars to art galleries to doctors that sort of thing um, that is is a growing trend and i think presents an opportunity particularly because uh, many of the baby boomers hold a great deal of their personal wealth in their homes, and and they're planning on selling those homes when they downsize and retire and using the funds to pay for their retirement. And there's a great deal of people planning to do exactly the same thing. So I think on the other end of the deal, which is to say the smaller places in inner city um, America, that's where you're going to see some, some opportunities. I think the McMansions might be hit. Yeah. All right, Christopher, thank you very much for coming into the studios and being with us here on Money for Nothing. My pleasure. Chris Dillon, author, entrepreneur, and investor. His latest book is called Landed Global. Very nice to have you with us. Four minutes now before 9 o'clock. Back to our news coverage this morning. A Legislative Council Select Committee set up to investigate the lavish spending of former ICAC Commissioner Timothy Tong has ended deeply divided over its report. This criticized Mr. Tong for tarnishing the reputation of the ICAC. It said that he had failed to properly handle matters relating to the whining and dining and the giving of gifts to mainland officials. But five of the 13 members of the committee refused to endorse what they called the watered-down findings. They issued their own minority report, accusing Mr. Tung of neglecting his responsibilities and severely damaging the ICAC's image. The Civic Party's Dennis Kwok was among the five pan-Democrat lawmakers who refused to endorse the report. He spoke with RTHK's Mike Weeks. Well, um, throughout the whole process, we fought very hard to change the wordings in many uh, parts of the report to highlight um, how serious uh, the community and how serious we see the, the misconduct of, of Mr. Timothy Tong in many respects. But um, a lot of our, our, our comments were, were uh, not included. And we've said, um, look, um, since we have a different uh, opinion on some of these issues, why don't we do a, um, a separate report uh, to be included in the annex so that um, the public would see that we have slightly different views on many of these issues. 
But um, this suggestion was at the end not taken up by the chairman of the select committee, Yip Kwok Kim. So we've decided we have no choice to issue a separate report so as to express our views on, on some of these issues and to set out our own recommendations on how to improve the system. OK, what did you actually say in your report then? We see that the fact that he used uh, regularly used hard liquor, consume hard liquor in official functions involving the ICAC and, and himself as a commissioner and the organising of, of alcohol feud, um, uh, drinking contests or karaoke's and the frequent visits to to the mainland, we see that as as, um, not only just inappropriate, but behavior that would positively damage the reputation uh, and the image of the ICAC, which uh, people have spent decades in building. Um, So we see that as, as very serious misconduct. And that is Dennis Kwok from the Civic Party, who is the uh, Legislative Council lawyer, or rather the uh, lawyer's representative in the Legislative Council. Well, coming up towards the end of the program today, a couple of things that we didn't get a chance to get to. China will exclude electric cars from purchase tax. Shanghai will let developers uh, seek record prices for home sales. And Datong Power has been raised to buy at Masterlink. Thanks very much for joining us here on Money for Nothing. The news will be coming up next. Briefly in the weather, mainly cloudy with showers today, isolated thunderstorms with lots of sunshine too. Hot conditions, 33 as the maximum.